Welcome to Voices of Care, the podcast series from New Cross Healthcare, which seeks to go to the very heart of the issues facing the health and care sector. We do this by engaging and, with the help of experts, leading the conversation about how we can truly enable the healthcare workforce of the future. I'm Sahail Mirza, and today we're going to talk about social care, which, according to some, is on the very precipice, perhaps, of an existential crisis. Now is the time, perhaps more than ever, to understand what is happening in the sector and what can be done. And there is nobody that I can think of better qualified to shed light on this issue than my guest today, Professor Martin Green, the CEO of Caringland. Martin, as ever, it's a delight to welcome you. Thank you, Sir Hale. I'd like to jump straight in. I want to spare your blushes, but I think it's about 10 years ago that you received an OBE for your services to social care. And yet I've got a sense of deja vu where 10 years later, the Health and Social Care Committee is bemoaning a workforce crisis. We've got stats coming out showing vacancies at record levels. And New Cross Healthcare's care survey, commissioning YouGov, uh, finds that over one in four, 27% of care workers surveyed, are likely to leave the sector over the next 12 months. Can you shed some light on the sheer extent of the workforce challenge across residential care? Yes, I think we are in one of the worst positions that we have been in many, many years. And recent data from Skills for Care showed clearly that the workforce challenge is enormous. They said that on any one day, there are about 160,000 vacancies across social care. So I think that gives you some understanding of how challenging the situation is. It's also interesting to note how many people are considering leaving the sector. And of course, not only is it a very complex and challenging role but we've all just been through a global pandemic and social care was on the very front line of that and I think a lot of people are starting to think about whether or not they can go on because of the stresses that they encountered during the Covid crisis. And this is a hugely important issue because again to flesh this out slightly just how important is social care not only to the people who receive uh, the services that your members provide but of course to the very functioning of the NHS. Yeah, I think people don't realise how interdependent the NHS and social care is. If social care collapses, the NHS would collapse. And of course, the other thing about social care, it provides a lot of support to people, particularly those with long-term conditions. And it also helps them live well and manage those long-term conditions. Now, if you didn't have social care, you'd have a lot of people who would suddenly go into crisis and then require acute care. So I think social care is really important from that point view. I think it's also really important to recognise what it does for carers. Social care enables carers to live a life as well as the person who's supported and that also has economic benefits. So if it wasn't for social care there'd be a lot of people who are currently in the employment sector who wouldn't be able to work because they'd have to look after someone they love. Now thank you for shedding like sometimes that's not really brought uh, to the fore when commentators uh, discuss NHS in particular. Uh, I'm going to use the F word, uh, I'm talking about funding here uh, of course. You've been on record earlier this year in September in fact to talk about your worry about a market collapse. You referred to it earlier, providers leaving uh, the sector. Um, the Health Foundation has produced stats uh, at the Real Centre showing that since 2010, the level of social care funding has grown by exactly 0% in, in real terms. It's over three years ago since the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee called the funding, or lack thereof, of social care a national scandal. And yet, what's interesting is the New Cross Healthcare Care Survey has revealed that 83% of the general population believe that a robust and fully funded 
social care system will relieve the pressure on the NHS, as, you, as you've uh, intimated, particularly on A&E. And 55% in that survey said they would be prepared for taxes to increase. Can you shed light on what the funding gap is, as was mentioned in the levelling up white paper, and what hope truly do we see of closing it? Well, the funding gap is enormous, and you rightly say that we haven't had any increases in many, many years. Of course, what that doesn't take account of is the amount of unmet need. So when we talk about the funding gap, what we're talking about is a gap in funding on the current levels. But, you know, uh, data from Age UK, for example, has identified the huge amount of unmet need. And if we don't deal with the funding gap now, what we'll find is that people will only get support when they go into crisis. Good social care is about stopping people going into a crisis. Um, I think the issue for me as well is I think we would have enough money in the system if we reapportioned it. We have got far too much money in the NHS and not enough in social care. Now, if we went back to saying, how do we apportion that money more effectively? How do we buy better outcomes? You would then start to see transfer of money from the NHS into social care. Uh, but of course, that's very politically difficult to to start talking about because the public has a view that with every issue the NHS needs more money. Well I think we need to look very clearly about the fact that we're in the 21st century, long-term conditions are the big issue and it's about helping people live well with a long-term condition and social care does that. So we've got to start seeing the money come across the system to where it's needed. But of course the gap is enormous, there hasn't been enough money put in over many years. So one of the problems that we have in social care is we start from a very low base. And even if we were to say, let's increase the funding in social care by 20%, it would be 20% of inadequate funding. So what we've got to do is, first of all, establish what we need for a long-term and sustainable social care sector, and then think about how we fund that. And it will be a combination of some government funding and some individuals having to put in money as well. Absolutely. And perhaps, perhaps um, that debate around a knee-jerk reaction, the NHS always needs more money and then we'll think about social care, might be beginning to be displaced if we look to the spirit uh, of the legislative changes that are taking place, uh, integrated care systems where social care is supposed to be at the very heart and coordinated. Well, that's very true that these integrated care systems offer an opportunity for us to redefine how we spend money on health and social care. My slight problem is that we've been here many times before. You know, I'm so old, I can remember coterminous systems, I can remember joint appointments, I can remember PCTs, I can remember health and wellbeing boards, which of course are still in existence. And what they were all trying to do was reapportion money and talk about how we got social care on a, on a stable footing. The issue for me is that a lot of these systems, there is a culture problem at the centre of them, and you can do as much as you want around changing structure, but unless you change the culture of the people who work in those systems, unfortunately we won't see much change. And when I look across the new ICSs, what I see are lots of people from the NHS in those senior roles, and unless we do some work on their culture and getting them to think differently and more creatively, I think we will just be exactly where we are today in five years time well we'll touch upon how we can do that um, uh, a little later on and i think uh, well so those of us with memories back to uh, stuart sutherland's report in the core for integration two decades ago will echo your uh, misgivings a little bit um, one final point looking at um, numbers and funding d drilling down a little bit is obviously the question of pay 
Um, the King's Fund has done some research, which I'm, of course you're familiar with, that showed about a decade ago uh, workers in social care earned about 13 pence per hour more than people in retail sales, etc. Decade later, that's 21 pence per hour less. I wanted to flesh that a little bit, also within the context of the government's proposal to require local authorities to ascertain a fair cost of care. But the meta-narrative at the moment, of course, is the cost of living crisis, which is real, it's present, and the New Cross uh, Healthcare Care Survey has found that 38% of respondents were open by, about saying potentially leaving the sector because of the cost of living crisis and pressure. I know it's a subject very close to your heart and that uh, Care England is advocating very strongly about. Yes, we have got to get our staff who do the most incredibly challenging, difficult and complex job properly paid. And when people talk about integration with the NHS, one of the things they never seem to do is talk about integrating the approach to pay and conditions. You know, if you look at a care worker, they're doing exactly the same things as care workers in NHS services do, and yet they're paid significantly less. This is a very difficult and complex role. It requires a lot of emotion energy as well as physical energy to do it effectively and yet we're paying people less than we pay them in retail and that's why we're seeing people come in and out of the sector and that's why a lot of people as your survey clearly shows are thinking about leaving the sector mainly because they cannot continue in it because there's not enough money to sustain their lifestyles so what we've got to do is first of all we've got to regard social care as a profession we've got to have some clear skills and competency frames works and we've got to have some very clear pay and conditions changes to make sure that people in social care are paid really what they're worth for doing a very complex job. And perhaps uh, to be reminded of the absolutely vital role that they played during the pandemic as well would perhaps support that advocacy. Absolutely. And one of the things that was quite outrageous was that in the pandemic, in Wales and in Scotland, the government gave social care workers a bonus. They did not do that in England. And yet in England, social care workers were doing exactly the same thing as these people in Scotland, Wales, and indeed the people in the NHS. And that should have been rewarded. And even if it takes longer to get a proper pay structure, the very least government could have done was give some recognition to the work that people did. And you know, it should be remembered, at the start of this pandemic, there was no vaccination programme. People were literally putting themselves at risk in order to support others. And that should have been acknowledged by the government and by the system. I think there'll be few that would uh, disagree. I'd just like briefly to touch upon international recruitment. Clearly, we have to support the advocacy of homegrown talent. But international recruitment does and is likely to remain a key element of supporting the healthcare workforce, particularly in social care. Yes, I think international recruitment has its place. And I think as well, we've got to recognise that we need to recruit internationally because of the numbers of people who need care and support. But we need to be strategic about how we do that. Now, I'm looking forward to the fact that the new ICSs will have to deliver an integrated workforce strategy within their localities. And I hope that they will make sure that international recruitment is part of that, but they understand what part it plays and they have a clear and strategic approach to both blending the needs for homegrown recruitment with the fact that there are some really skilled and brilliant staff overseas who could make a contribution to our sector. 
Just expanding the conversation a little bit, there are challenges, as you've highlighted, and much to do. I want to focus on uh, the We Care for England campaign and vision that you have, uh, because that really brings to life the stories of people who provide the care. We're waiting for a workforce strategy, as you say. But could you expand a little bit about that work, which has been a, a tireless project on your part? Yeah, We Care for England campaign was something that we really thought we should lead on ourselves. We had been talking for a long time about others leading on the issues around improving people's perception of care. But we thought if nobody else is going to do it, we should make a stab at it. Uh, and one of the things that's been great about that campaign is we have seen countless examples of people who have really committed to working in social care and also what a difference they've made to people's lives. So it's a real celebration of the social care workforce. And one of the problems is that when we talk about some of the challenges, I think that leads us down a road of making a negative statement about social care. But of course, there is so much that's so positive positive about social care and we wanted to champion that in this campaign and what I've loved about it is the way in which we've spoken to staff and we've heard their stories but also we've spoken to people who use services and they have told us countless examples of interventions or relationships they've established with the people they uh, who are supporting them which have been turned into friendships and they've been so important in transforming someone's life and we, we really wanted to get those positive stories out there. I think that's important as part of any recruitment drive to understand that this is a calling and a profession and the value that it brings. And very briefly to touch upon, uh, we not, don't have time to go into the great detail around wellness and burnout. It's, it's a huge issue. Um, but I've been fascinated to understand some of the work that your members have been doing using arts and dance and uh, theatre to help people to cope with the tremendous demands that are put placed upon them, but also to flourish. Yeah, and I think it's been great to see the way in which the artistic elements have been used to improve people's well-being, not only people who use services, but staff as well. Um, I'm very fortunate that I'm a trustee for the National Centre for Creative Health, which was something uh, that was started a, a, a couple of years ago. And that's trying to bring creativity into the sector, but it's also trying to make sure that staff have an opportunity to... Um, uh, focus on their well-being, to have an enjoyable experience, to use creativity as a way of dealing with some of the pressures in social care. And we've seen some fantastic examples of dance, music, um, uh, you know, also artistic expression being used as a way of improving people's well-being and also giving joy in to people's lives. I'm delighted to hear that. It's, again, an image that's not naturally associated sometimes with the sector, so it's fantastic to see that. You talked earlier about um, pay, of course, but the wider context of career and development. I wanted to touch upon something that uh, the Social Care White Paper at the end of last year called upon, which is more creative, <clears throat> more effective pathways for registered managers. Now, that role... Uh, unfortunately has had challenges in terms of vacancy levels, as you know, and I think it is clear that the absence of a registered manager actually affects negatively recruitment of the care workers. And you produced a document in light of the white paper, so the Social Care Leadership Programme, which I think seeks to address that issue. 
Yes, I think one of the problems in social care is that we don't have really clear career pathways. What I want to see are skills and competency frameworks that are underpinned by a, a, a portable qualification system, but I also want to see some very clear career pathways. And you're absolutely right, Suhail, the registered manager is absolutely pivotal to so much within a care service. And what you see is if you have a good registered manager, they set the tone for that service. And that's why, of course, the Care Quality Commission has leadership as one of its criteria and one of the things they look at. So we've got to grow more managers. We've got to give them some clear career pathways. We've got to reward them for this very difficult and complex job, because for me, they are the cornerstone of a quality service. And the document, I think, was submitted to the Department of Health. Um, has there been any material or substantive progress in terms of its uh, findings and implementations? Well, unfortunately, since we um, delivered the document, we've had several changes in the senior ministerial team. Uh, and so, of course, a lot of these things wait for government. Um, but I think also, you know, one of the things I've been saying to Care England members is don't wait for government. If you wait for a government initiative, you'll wait forever. Now, if I look across my membership, some of my large corporates have got some absolutely brilliant approaches to developing staff. So what they see is that they do have clear career pathways. They do have a great deal of investment in training and development. And I think they are uh, really in the vanguard of delivering a proper approach to recruitment, retention and career pathways. And what I'd like to see is that the model that they're using is now cascaded to the entire sector. And in fact, our proposals to government were very much in that vein to say, we know it's a very diverse sector. There are some good examples of people who are developing career pathways. And what we just need to do is make sure that those are now cascaded. So everybody's doing it rather than smaller numbers doing it. Well, let's hope the document uh, reaches the desk of the Health Secretary. Just sticking with the training and development, uh, New Cross Healthcare's uh, mission uh, is to be a learning partner uh, for life for anyone who wants to enter the career, uh, with their careers within the care sector and provide training for free. Um, the healthcare survey that I talked about earlier surprisingly found that 60% uh, of respondents were asked to do tasks for which they had no training. So the importance of training and entry and post-entry levels of development I think is crucial for the professionalisation and continued professionalisation of the sector. I absolutely agree. And one of the things I would like to see is some pre-practice training. So if you look at things like nursing, if you look at things like nursery education, uh, and indeed education generally, what happens is people get training before they go into practice. And I think, again, we need to look at some of those models for the social care sector so that we can really give people all the skills and knowledge they need to start their career. Of course, it's always the case that you never really learn until you're actually doing the job. But if you have a basis of some good practice before you start to develop your, your skills, it really helps you. Absolutely. No, I agree. Um, I'd like finally just to step back a little bit and look at uh, the question of longevity. I know it's very important to you. And as you say, sometimes the, we can need um, couch these discussions in terms of a negative perception. I believe it's 25 years since the International Longevity Centre was established, of which you're chair. Um, it does many things, the research, but reading uh, its mission, I see that it, the spirit that animates it is a celebration of longevity, socially, economically. Um, can you expand upon some of the work that it does? Because it does inform how we should approach the whole issue of longevity. 
Yes, it does. And I have to pay tribute to the late Baroness Greengross, who thought up the idea and who developed the International Longevity Centre. And we now, of course, have ILCs on every continent. One of the things that Lady Greengross was really passionate about was saying, let's look to the future. Let's recognise that we will have greater numbers of older people. But she also said, what is the impact that will have on younger people? What does it mean for every aspect of society? What does it mean for care, for health? What does it mean for transport, for housing, for intergenerational approaches? And what the ILC is doing is looking at some of these issues and trying to chart a path which says, how can we respond to this in a really positive way? And, you know, we talked about the workforce crisis. One of the things that there are are a lot of people who might be described as the younger retired who could make a huge contribution to social care. They've got the skills, they've got the values, and they would like to work, but they don't want to work in the traditional patterns. So what we've got to do is we've got to start thinking differently about how we orientate work, and we've got to use the skills and abilities of everyone in society to everybody's mutual benefit. And that was the aim that Lady Greengross had when she started the ILCs. And, um, you know, I spoke to her literally days before she died, and I made her a commitment that we will continue to deliver her vision. Um, And we've got some big plans at the ILC for how we move this agenda forward. And and your members at Care England, of course, fall within that matrix of offering flexible career pathways to help celebrate the contribution that people can make at any stage in their life. Yes, indeed. And one of the things that we really do see is that if you have a mixed workforce in terms of age and gender and ethnicity, you really get a much better balance of views, opinions. Uh, The service is much more responsive to people's needs. So it's a really positive thing to have diversity, whether it's in age, whether it's in gender, whether it's in ethnicity. You know, it's about saying we are caring for everybody. So we should be representative of all those different dynamics within care. Martin, um, I thank you as always. I hope policymakers are able to see that uh, the social care challenge is also an opportunity to celebrate longevity, to provide the funding and the recognition and the parity of esteem that you've been advocating for such a long time. I'm grateful for your time and of course for your wisdom today. Thanks Suhail, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. You're absolutely welcome. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please follow, like or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want to have more information about how we're enabling the workforce of the future within healthcare, please join us at newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahail Mirza. Goodbye and thank you.